0: From the West Coast. This is the Politicoast Canby Report special year end live show. Today is December 30th, 2020. And how are you doing, Matthew? He's still working on his mic. <laughs> there are 654 days until the Vancouver municipal election. I'm, I'm Ian Bushfield.
1: I'm Scott Stark- Boom.
0: And Matthew is going to fix his microphone as quickly as he can. Tonight we are excited to do our first crossover live show and official internet stream. I'm sorry I hit the wrong button when I tried to get my video working to intro us but hopefully it was fancy and people liked it. We'll be reviewing on tonight's show the year in municipal provincial and federal politics. So it only makes sense to have the combined team of our two shows from the leg and boot media empire here to talk to you tonight. Scott, why don't you tell people about how they can support the show and I will see if I can help Matthew.
1: Sure. So, first of all, a big thank you to the combined 193 people who contribute uh, between the two shows every month. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash and patreon.com slash cambireport. And this is the part where if Matthew had his mic working, he would say patreon.com slash dot patreon.com slash cambireport.
0: Indeed. Patreon.com slash Politicoast is where you can support the other show. All three, both shows, all two shows are useful, are good, and need your support. Um, Matthew, I don't know what to suggest. If you can hit the cam mic settings at the bottom, maybe you can switch to the other microphone. You did manage to mute yourself and unmute, but... (coughs) other than that. Maybe I will bump Matthew out from us for a second, if he can restart his Chrome that might help her his browser that might help. Scott, why don't you lead us into the top story in Vancouver politics from your point of view from the past year?
1: Okay, certainly. Well, I think On all three levels of government, top story absolutely has to be COVID. So we'll briefly touch on that one first before kind of jumping into kind of the three individual stories we picked out for the year in municipal politics. So overall, I think the city probably had the least direct responses to it, but... Nevertheless, it had to do a fair bit. Revenues were down significantly, leaving the city to scramble, and a uh, provincial government that was a little stingy on the aid to larger cities didn't help that. And additionally, uh, you saw the city take a bunch of steps to support people social distancing, whether that was in Stanley Park, where they changed up how they were going to run the traffic and biking through there or the patios that uh, ended up leading to a little bit of controversy at City Hall. Yeah,
0: the city, as we kind of saw across the country, has very limited tools to deal with COVID. And one of the things I think we could touch on if we want later in the provincial section is how BC managed to avert having each municipality run their own little approach of shows uh, own little approach of how to deal with COVID by mandating one one law across the province. And I think that averted a lot of chaos that we might have seen. And I think we saw a little bit in other provinces.
1: Well, that was after we actually had a bit of chaos, because it was only, what, second or third week of the crisis when the province actually stepped in and overruled every municipality's individual uh, declaration of emergency. Jeez.
0: Yeah, things started to get going very quickly. I mean, one of the biggest challenges for Vancouver's COVID response is just the lack of fiscal tools, right? They don't have the money. When they begged the province for it, they struggled. They didn't get as much as they wanted, and they had to ultimately resort to reaching out for a budget increase, but they didn't want to make that too onerous. And so we settled on this 5% property tax hike to cover the massive shortfall and then on across the board kind of status quo to cut austerity budget
1: yeah the process also stepped in and did allow cities to borrow against their capital funds which is okay in a crisis but I, I think really underlines the problems with how municipal finance in general is structured in BC is that cities can't really borrow which leaves them in a tough position because they can't run a deficit just because there's a massive contraction in the economy that's only going to last a year or two and you know hopefully by 2022 everything's bounced back that there's no big holes in revenue or anything but the fact that they weren't able to just put out some bonds for a couple of years and ride it out like the other levels of government have I think underscores a kind of big weakness in just structurally how the province runs its municipalities and that is something the provincial government will hopefully take a look at because municipal government overall is long overdue for reforms kind of structurally.
0: It's a very busy time of year in many ways and it's very <laughs> not busy in others. Scott, you wanted to talk tonight about Kennedy Stewart's failed six-plex plan. I think we could, Matthew and I talked about this a little bit on the podcast Canby Report. Why don't you approach it from your point of view?
1: Sure. So when we were planning this episode out, we were kind of looking at what was kind of like the big thing that happened this year, besides the very obvious thing that has covered everything which would be COVID. And what I actually came away with wasn't so much what we did in the city, but what didn't happen. And Kennedy's attempt at getting a very minor pilot project passed in September of this year, I think is emblematic of a city government that actually just hasn't done much after over two years now, since the last election. And uh, in this case, uh, what Kennedy put forward was a proposal to allow up to six homes on lots that had previously just been single family detached on the condition that one or more of those homes would have to be reserved for specific incomes. uh, In this case, between 80,000 and 120,000 household income. And the thing went down in flames when it actually went to council, failing seven to two, with Councillor Christine Boyle and Mayor Kennedy being the only ones to actually vote on it. And I
0: mean, technically, it was punted long into the future. So it's not dead. It may come back. It just needs a lot more study.
1: It, for all intents and purposes, it's dead. I, it, We're not going to see anything come of this, really. I mean, there might be like a line in the citywide plan whenever that thing gets done. And that was the other thing that got, or one of the many things that got scaled back as a result of the COVID crunch. So that itself has been pushed off by a couple more years and the scope is being narrowed. But this is just emblematic in general of the challenges this council's had actually getting anything done and everyone on council kind of came in with a situation where housing was the top issue everyone kind of wanted to see changes but nobody could really kind of agree on what was going to be done on that and as we've seen that has continued through now and now and as a result even something small like this couldn't get done which is pretty terrible because yeah, all of our attention's been taken away um, because of the pandemic but there are still very serious problems in housing in Vancouver and we're not actually seeing a council that's willing to put any political capital down and actually take action on that. Welcome back,
2: Matthew. Sorry about this, everyone. There has been a a bit of a problem getting audio working on my uh, my computer here.
1: It's coming in a little after we, but uh, better than nothing at all. So
2: I'll
0: play with to join some us. backend settings. I think that might work. Welcome, Matthew.
2: All right. Sorry, everyone. Uh, I'm glad to be joining everyone here at the year end live stream. Uh, where have we got to so far?
1: Uh, we were just talking about the failed attempt by Kennedy Stewart to get a pilot project for Sitzplatz's passed.
2: Uh it's a it's a string in almost successes. (laughs) That's it it was actually like it was a pretty ambitious plan. Uh in in a city that like severely lacks density and has bad swaths of land allocated strictly to single family housing, um, the sexplex plan would have been uh, a boost to uh, creating the missing middle, if not the, what is typically defined as the missing middle of housing uh, generally, but uh, that kind of mid-range densification that I think is the one needs.
0: Well, and it was so unambitious It was a pilot project to do maybe a hundred lots so best case scenario we get 500 additional units which isn't nothing but it would still take a while for that many people to decide to redevelop their lots and you know it's a crisis right we're in a crisis like you say scott it's shocking how (laughs) unable municipal council is able to actually do anything
1: yeah and the mayor came in at, like, his big pitch in the election was that he was a consensus builder could work as an independent and bring people together and you just haven't seen that happening
2: and part of that was the council that he was dealt Like there, there is a naturally very divided council that uh, just by virtue of the hodgepodge of ideologies that was elected wasn't going to agree on a clear way to do really anything except not go with ice cream i guess
1: yeah and that's definitely a challenge but at the same time it didn't really appear like he did the actual background work and the deal making that's required before the actual vote was held and just seemed surprised that a bunch of people who aren't his political allies they just jump on board a proposal he put in front of them with short notice.
2: And, and this is one of the things that like his political experience does not particularly prepare him well for. There isn't a lot of horse trading at the individual MP level uh, at federal parliament, particularly in the NDP where one, there was a lot more caucus on ideological unity uh, and two, that kind of dealing is done by uh, House leaders and whips rather than, and, and party leaders uh, rather than individual MPs. And I, I don't actually know whether Stewart had a House position, but um, it is a different beast working with a whole range of like 10 other actors versus what is effectively three other actors.
0: One of the things he was able to get through though was a motion to decriminalize drugs in Vancouver. We kind of tied this in for you, Scott. What exactly have they agreed to do?
1: They've agreed to write a letter to the government of Canada, asking them to decriminalize drugs by providing a citywide exemption to the controlled substances laws, which I, I guess if nothing else, Kennedy Stewart's gotten a lot of practice writing letters to various other levels of government the problem is by itself those letters don't accomplish a huge amount we haven't actually seen also the deal making and kind of the background work that's needed to turn those letters into action by the other levels of government so symbolically it's good and and fine but it seems to be mostly symbolism It, it hasn't amounted to much
2: to the extent that the letter will like achieve anything, uh, it does put Stewart on record as having what is one of the most radical um, approaches to directly listening in uh, North America, really, uh, like short of Portugal and believed now um, Oregon. Uh, like this would bring us up to the Oregon level that recently passed in the U.S. election. Um, Unfortunately, the municipal government doesn't actually have the ability to do this, Uh, nor does it have the ability to affect policing in the same way, as we found out on on other reports as the police board was just saying, no, thank you to uh, very hoped for changes brought forward to them by council. Council has written
0: a lot of letters. They have done this a number of times. It's one of the you know, one of the key tools council has is to ask the mayor to write a letter. I think they wrote a letter reestablishing Vancouver as a nuclear free zone because that's uh, very uh, high on their.
1: I mean, it, it's great list. that the bylaw officers are going to ticket anyone who tries to bring a dirty bomb into Vancouver, but it, it, that's another <laughs> symbolic gesture on, on the part of this government uh and the council in general and after more than two years i'm just frustrated that basically nothing in this city is any different than it was in october of 2018 i mean i i guess the traffic's better a little bit but i'm guessing kennedy stewart doesn't want to take credit for the global pandemic that uh cut down on the commuting it'd be a hell of a legacy (laughs)
0: Jesse in the comments was asking if Vancouver has signs for being a nuclear-free zone like Nanaimo does, and I believe we used to. I think they got replaced for the Olympics. Unless there's still the one on First Ave.
1: There's one on Broadway just after you cross um, Boundary.
2: And as you come, I know as you come up from the airport uh, or on Oak Street, there is a a, a nuclear-free city uh, thing, which has a picture of a mountain, which like doesn't really speak to much, but it's kind of unfortunate because I I want to drive in the other direction. I I don't think that (laughs) there is going to be a solution to long-term energy needs without some kind of nuclear power. And while I understand that probably building a nuclear reactor right in the house part of, uh, like Errol, of course, it's probably not the ideal place for it. We probably are going to have to look at moving towards nuclear power in the next hundred years if we want to live on a planet rather than die on it.
0: Well, from the virtue signaling of Vancouver council at the boundaries of the city to the collapse of virtues, the story I wanted to touch on was the NPA's rough year as a party and as a caucus. So, sorry, is this uh, the
1: party or the caucus you're talking about? Those it's kind are of
0: the different. both of them, right? So, uh, I mean, Indeed, last the splitting year, of
2: them in twain was is the whole <laughs> genesis of this, this thing.
0: Yeah, at the end of last year, uh, we talked to Rebecca Bly in December about how she was leaving the NPA over her disagreements with the board as the lone out queer member of the NPA Council, Uh, she didn't feel that the shift to social conservatism in that party was one that she could stomach, and so she went and sat in as independent. (laughs) Later, as that board continued its far-right radical shift, the rest of the caucus announced they were all leaving to sit as independent NPAers. And then at one point, we even had Ken Sim pop back into the news saying, He's going to run for mayor again in the next election, but not against as an NPA. He's yeah. going to run against the NPA, which was great.
2: In, in fairness, it did work pretty well for Kennedy Stewart. Uh,
0: <laughs> he didn't being, have to run against anyone, though. Oh, I guess he did run against the NPA.
2: Yeah. Um, one thing that like this should be elaborated on a little bit is that there are um, between election years. There's two uh periods when the board of the mpa changes over one is right before nomination season uh prior to the election year like it happens one it'll end up happening next year this one happened last year uh the first of the two changeovers during the period on it uh on the new board a lot of people who had ties to fiery media groups or anti-soji groups or um some extreme right-wing other affiliations were elected to the npa board this caused the both currently and more historically uh left-wing npa caucus like the npa has functioned oftentimes as a group of businessmen who will select a group of representatives of that they feel like they can live with and then they become the city council but it's the business businessmen who are picking the The nominees. Um, That dynamic has ended effectively, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, if this board is able to hold sway. Um, The big question, really, is at the end of, I think it's going to be about November of this year, uh, there is going to be another NPA board election, and that is going to be the big, uh, pivot point around which the NPA turns. Are people going to come back into caucus or, uh, is the anti soji um, more far right, more like coalition Vancouver style, uh, representatives or, uh, board members going to hold power, uh, into the future. And if so, where do the current NPA counselors go?
1: That's a good question. Elections have a way of trying to bring everyone that are nominally on the same team together. So I I, I could see them trying to mend some fences, but at the same time, this is a problem that center-right parties across the, the Western world are struggling with right now, which is kind of very active base members who are fairly offside with the general electorate and are trying to push parties in directions that they think is great but probably is not going to be electorally viable.
0: It's kind of like the exact opposite problem the NPA or the NDP has where the people who are pushing the party think they know where the public is but they do not represent the base. The NDP is like let's move to the center we think most people are there and the base is like but the left
1: yeah but like the, the ndp is <laughs> actually doing a better job of ignoring their nuttier base in this case
0: well provincially they're good at getting elected federally they just get cut off by the liberals
2: yeah and, we'll and the liberal party that. i think the liberal party has a a yeah we'll we'll come back on my theory of the liberal party uh when we get to federal politics <laughs>
0: So the NPA will be the thing to watch definitely in the next year, especially as we get into the home stretch of the lead up to the next election. Like we say off the top, only 654 days left until that happens. Make sure you're registered to vote. Matthew, maybe as one final story on municipal politics, do you want to sum up the fun that has been the Michael Weeb conflict of interest drama, unless you have a different highlight from municipal politics?
2: No, no, we'll do, we'll do the weave gate. Um, you know, because of course everything, it's patio gate, I guess, patio gate is better because there are patio gates. Uh, and in fact one on Michael's, uh, Michael Weeb's eight and a half restaurant. So at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic catastrophe, uh, we could not eat indoors anymore. And on March 17th, the city shut down. Uh, Moving forward, the City Council uh, and powers that be tried to figure out a way for uh, cash-strapped businesses, particularly restaurants, who also served as an essential service, uh, creating dine-out meals uh, and delivery options uh, to provide them with additional seating so that they could maintain some of their capacity over the summer months. Um, This vote took place in May. it is, uh it passed almost unanimously I believe um, if not unanimously and Michael Weeb voted for it. Uh, a couple of weeks on, Michael Weeb's restaurant in uh, which is just over yonder and the uh, another restaurant downtown that he owns a, a uh, investor sharing in uh, both qualifying for patios uh, under this program. Then, uh, in June, this is reported in one of the regional papers, I think it's the Vancouver courier later on in the summer, uh, it is announced that a group of people, particularly, uh, those affiliated with some newly elected board members of the NPA, uh, just muted
0: as we've had some issues with Matthew, hopefully he notices. <coughs> I know he's in a good stream of consciousness about this, um, So the, the Michael Weeb stuff has been an ongoing challenge. Um, it seems like, it seems like it shouldn't be a thing.
1: There
2: we are. Okay. Excellent. So Michael Weeb had three defenses effectively. One is that the interest was held by electors in common. Uh, the next was that it was a, so minor an interest that it was not germane to the the vote. And then the final one being, uh, whoops, it was done in good faith and not in a manner that was deliberately designed to advance the pecuniary interest of the, uh, city councilor to the detriment of other people. So like Ian and I did some fairly dense, uh, looking into this over. A couple episodes of the candy report and i do recommend going and reading them particularly where um michael weaves responding to the petition uh, which kind of outlines his arguments uh now this is going to be going to supreme court and we do not know exactly when that going to be ruled on it is kind of unfair i think to vancouver electors for uh, this to have dragged on all the way from may to x month in next year uh it would necess- necessitate a by-election and uh that effectively puts us in the same political situation where we were in 2017 uh where uh, a vacancy opened up and that was the one that i mean, a by-election Premier right won. now
0: would be really fun but but like you say Yeah, Yeah, like you say, the uncertainty is unfair to electors. It's why I think we've seen Michael Weeb take a absurdly cautious approach to conflict of interests at council, voting even or recusing himself even from votes on library fines. Not clear why. Maybe he has some. But come on, you can vote on whether we can have library fines, Michael.
1: Or or the... uh things influencing, was it Easy Park, that, who he's only on the board of because the city appointed him to it, and he's not going to actually vote on there. What's the point of having the city pay him to be on it?
2: Uh, two things. One, uh, someone points out in the chat that he also argued that the uh, petition was filed after the 45-day time limit, uh, which was actually quite important because, as I was alluding to earlier, I've got a speech jammer effect going on in my ear. It's like throwing me off. Uh, the um, petition is supposed to be filed within 45 days of the original violation coming to light. Uh, when that was, is debatably either the date of the vote or the date that it was reported of the Courier. Uh, suffice it to say, after a city conflict of interest, uh, investigation that kind of concluded that Councillor would had um, abridged the rules in an improper way. The um, electors of the PA decided that they would file it within 45 days of that report, but that report happened in September.
0: It's a very messy situation. It's also not as fun as the other famous conflict of interest case from the year, which was Pigeon Gate in uh, district of north vancouver which Is that just, year? i think it was some of the stories about it some of the follow-up reports okay for so long i don't remember when that first started but it was some of it was in 2020 it's been a very very long year that said i think we've spent a good amount of time on municipal politics let's maybe turn our attention a little more provincially and shift our light to the capital in Victoria. Let's talk a bit about how BC has managed to respond to COVID. Then we'll pick out a couple of our favorite stories of the year. BC, of course, being the province, has the power of health. And so its response is probably biggest in our minds, at least because they're the ones in charge of it. Uh, This year was Dr. Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry's year I think most people learned her name this year who didn't know her before and Adrian Dix really came into the spotlight like no one really expected I think prior to this he was mostly remembered for his ill fated 2013 run against Christy Clark when he flip-flopped a bit too much and then struggled and this year he just looked competent as far as we could tell and definitely in the, yeah,
1: first time I, the pandemic. He, during the press conferences, he definitely gives off the, the air competence and he definitely knows his files well and all those details. So, in that respect, the performance has been good. I think what is less clear is the broader package of decisions, orders, and everything that has come out of the BC government. That has been, I think, significant not nearly as good as a lot of people had assumed earlier in the year so during the first wave we had a fairly mild uh outbreak here in bc i I think daily cases peaked at like the 90s or low 100s and by oh it's like by june we are down to something like 10 cases a day and i think that can't that resulted in a lot of people kind of taking the impression away that, you know, BC was handling this particularly well, despite the fact that the public health had actually taken a pretty um, soft hand and light touch during the first wave. And then throughout the second wave that kind of started in August and really peaked in, I think early December uh, is when the highest case counts were. We haven't actually performed all that well, and the government has been, I think, slow to react. It's been taking a very kind of cautious wait and see approach when I think a more decisive action would have been ideal. Like, uh, th- just as an example, it was not until what, something like November 20th when the province. Finally, decided to take the masks that they've been recommending since May and actually make it a requirement that people wear them.
0: Yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. how much of our initial response was luck versus, you know, smart decision making by Henry and Dix and others. I feel like some and there was also a lot of collective buy-in early on that was really good to see we had people actually shut things down voluntarily so there wasn't as much need early in the pandemic to force it on people and that did a lot of the legwork i think for the province we weren't we haven't been able to get that same level of social buy-in recently so how we're going to go about going forward. I mean, I'm hopeful with the latest numbers I've seen that the actions since mid-late November are having a big effect, Um, but to be determined. uh, And I think uh, just for, I don't know if he can hear us, but I think I bumped Matthew's audio off, which means that he can no longer hear us, which is why he's probably not
2: saying anything. Okay. No, I'm I'm back. I, oh, you are. I'm back, and I can hear you now. Uh, okay. moment so oh, okay. The terror and
0: the fun of doing this all live. Matthew, what's been your perspective on how the province has managed this pandemic?
2: pretty good i voted for them for it basically um and don't tell anyone <laughs> but uh the province did a, a pretty excellent job both in elevating a clear and concise and capable leader uh you know having dr Bunny henry on tap i guess as provincial health officer was uh a good uh, stroke of luck, and she has turned out to be a charismatic and calming force for the province. Um, the uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic, I think British Columbians responded particularly well to because we um, just decided to extend the cocoon period uh, when Vancouver is uninhabitably rainy for a couple more months. Uh, at some point, though, the tyranny of the sunny day speaks out and calls to you and you have to get out to the park and you have to get out to the beach. And as it turns out, both of those are relatively uh, safe activities as well. Um, now, though, as we are being forced inside again, uh, it's going to be more of a problem. And I, I hope that we can keep in mind that this is only going to have to last us a couple more months like seven more months um but without without you know considerable banding together and like managing to stem the rise of the second uh, wave we you know are going to be facing the same kind of issues with hops uh hospital collapse or like overstressed health system. Manitoba recently entered a overstressed health system period uh, where their health system was in danger of shutting down uh, just because of the intense number of cases. Now, particularly with the uh, fast spreading coronavirus, this becomes even more of a danger. So our social distancing measures become even more important.
0: Which is why we're doing this online and not having a big show in a theater like we wish we could. Also, we couldn't legally do that, <laughs>
1: but. Uh, so yeah, just the only other thing I'll, I'll add on is uh, today was announced that, was it, liquor sales are gonna be ending at 8 p.m. tomorrow. And well, that's good, I, I also do think it's a little emblematic of a kind of response from the government that's being a little slow and perhaps overly reactive rather than proactive like the fact that people like to drink on new years is not new information it seems weird that this is only getting decided or announced on december 30th and there's a there's a dozen other things I, i could point to throughout this where the provinces seem to kind of taking a wait and see approach where I think a more proactive approach to things would have probably been more effective. And hopefully when this is all over, we have a nice I don't know, Royal commission or whatever to like do a, do a full after action review of, of everything that's gone on in 2020. With- when
0: the Cullen commission is done, it's public inquiry into money laundering. They can do a public inquiry into how decent our pandemic response was yeah
1: a lot of lessons learned from this i think the the
0: great thing about bc is we can always grade ourselves on a curve we can point Uh, to other provinces especially like alberta and america that are worse
1: but that annoys me so much because that is a huge part of what was i think wrong with how british Columbians have approached this is that we as in general like canadians have a tendency to want to grade ourselves on a curve and as long as the US, or Europe, or the UK, or even Alberta is doing worse, we generally find ourselves being satisfied with the outcomes, even if like, they are objectively not great. Like, why was it generally considered acceptable that we'd have case numbers in the 700s rather than like the 100s we were having at the peak of our first wave? But the I mean, the answer is because other places have it worse, is really why there hasn't been a bigger reaction to that.
0: Well, let's jump into what we think our top stories from the year in BC politics were aside from COVID and obviously COVID affected everything. I'll lead off, we got a question in the patron Slack from Sancho about And a suggestion about the Wet'suwet'en protests and the MOU that was signed as one of the highlight stories. This was something we talked a lot about early in the year. These protests somewhat shut the country down in January and February with rails being blockaded. There was a lot of headlines in it. And pretty much by the time the pandemic really shut everything down in mid-March, it was unclear whether it was going to keep getting bigger or bigger or just managed to find some kind of reconciliation and instead everyone's attention got turned to everything that was being canceled. And so in that time period, just before March, the province had assigned Murray Rankin and Nathan Cullen, prominent ex-NDP MPs to different consultative roles to smooth tensions with the Wet'suwet'en peoples to try to find this memorandum of understanding to try to figure out how we could deal with this. And the tensions really came back to how this coastal gasoline pipeline from uh, frac- uh, natural gas reserves in northeastern BC could get to new uh, facilities on the west coast up north there. And the elected councils had all signed agreements with Coastal GasLink, but many of the hereditary chiefs who represent a lot of the unceded territory that this pipeline was planning to go through had not agreed and had been vocally opposed to it. And this led to...
2: Go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, this is one of the areas of uh, Indigenous representation Mm -hmm. law that is kind of approaching a settling point. The elected bands are in general, the desired interlocutor of the government, uh, the federal government and the provincial governments, but there are land rights that are vested with the traditional hierarchies, including hereditary chiefs. Um, This ended up being acknowledged effectively for the first time at the, the memorandum of understanding that was signed at the end of the Wet'suwet'en protests, um, this makes a distinction between the Wet'suwet'en, um, like people, uh, and those who live specifically in the community, which stand to benefit to a greater degree, uh, in the research attraction that, uh, Crystal Glassbank would be bringing to the area, than the more broadly dispersed members of Wet's Wet Nation. There were also political divides within Wet's Wet Nation as well, that shouldn't be glossed over, but, um, and, and some intrigue actually, but uh, it is a fascinating story that managed to completely fizzle out uh, as the world began to die. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and we were asked for an update on this, and I couldn't find anything since that's been posted publicly since August on where these discussions have been going. The MOU that was released in May uh, said there were a number of issues to be sorted out within six months, including child and family wellness, water, and the Wet'suwet'en were supposed to come up with a nation reunification strategy so they would have one voice with which to talk to the province with, and... They said in mid-August that those were all well underway and they expected to have them very soon. And it's been silence from uh, Indigenous Crown Affairs, Minister Carolyn Bennett and the federal government and the provincial government since then. I found a couple stories relating to the drama uh, Matthew alluded to. There are some former hereditary chiefs, largely women who have been ousted and they say it is Uh, unjustly ousted and so they are claiming a human rights complaint that they have not been properly consulted in this entire process Uh, it's very messy at the same time it's been kind of a uh, thorn in the neck of John Horgan's claim to be the reconciliation premier with his UNDRIP bill as it drew out a lot of young people many indigenous to protest across the province, including blocking the initial, the first throne speech of the year in early 2020, when no MLAs could get into the building without crossing a massive protest line.
1: Yeah, and well, I suspect part of the reason why we haven't heard more since that August update is because the government spent a good chunk of the fall, while not being the government, and running for a impromptu re-election for that, which no doubt meant that a bunch of those negotiations had to be paused.
2: I would imagine that that's part of it. I also think that resolving the internal issues between Wetten Wet and M- I believe WENDAC, which is the, the municipality, effectively, or like the, the regional government uh, that's under the auspices of the First Nations Government Act, uh, that is going to be a more challenging discussion for within the community. I wonder if they end up with some kind of like bicameralism or something like that, because both hereditary and elected governments have merit, I think.
0: And I mean, COVID has also made it incredibly difficult to do all of these negotiations. Many of the plans I imagine they had relied on traditional uh, approaches to negotiations which involved a lot of communal meals, a lot of in-person meetings and ceremony, all of which have pretty much been suspended since March, particularly because a number of the elders in these communities especially in the north are high risk and with the difficulty of getting healthcare into quickly out of some of these communities you don't want to put these people at greater risk than necessary i know a lot of it has been done by zoom but you know there are limits to online technology as we can see tonight and as everyone has experienced over the past year so it's understandably going slower than expected and the other challenge is the MOU explicitly ruled out solving the coastal gas link question. It said, we are only going to look forward, and that pipeline is just going to be
2: left it's hanging. It's probably going to be built. It's, it's being built, parts of it. And uh, basically, I, I actually still think that the uh, Wet'suwet'en Hereditary chief scored a pretty big strategic win in... Um, securing the recognition of the federal government that they were the legitimate representatives of the Wet'suwet'en with respect to land title. Uh, That had never been acknowledged before, and the government had been strongly in favor of uh, recognizing democratically elected band councils.
0: Well, you touched on the election and whether that may have impacted these negotiations or not, Scott, but that was definitely one of the big stories of the year. So why don't you take us into that?
1: Yeah. In addition to COVID, this has to be kind of the big political story provincially of 2020, which is the NDP went from a tenuous minority government to a comfortable majority on the backs of, well, voters like Matthew who supported them, I think in large part because of the uh, pandemic response and their perceptions there, as well as a rather troubled and weak opposition. And- May
2: Adam Smith, they have mercy on my soul.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, the end result was that the NDP got up to 57 seats and scored a bunch of unexpected wins in traditional liberal strongholds in the Valley, which I think more so than the NDP's weakness, or sorry, more so than the NDP's strength, which a lot of kind of the the broad factors were supportive of them. They'd had a good economy up until COVID, the federal government's response and their own responses to that kind of kept things Lesogan and they were seen to respond well to it. But the opposition party didn't really have well basically any idea of what it wanted to do or be. and the, the Liberals have been I think struggling with this ever since they lost power in 2017 and Andrew Wilkinson was never able to quite figure that out. And the broad strategy that they had employed of, well, if we just hold steady and can pick up a couple of those seats we narrowly lost, we'll be back in power. But.
0: It was an argument that was technically correct, but ignored all surrounding factors.
1: Yeah. If you assume that. 2020 or even 2019 is the same as 2017 when you're missing a lot of things which they were and it turned out not to be a good strategy and it spelled the end of Andrew Wilkinson's leadership and overall it's I think left the BC Liberal Party in a place of
2: Uh, death spiral Death spiral. I think one of the big tragedies of Andrew Wilkinson is that he.
1: Oh. Wow. Wilkinson leadership became so death spiral. killed uh, Matthew's connection. I mean, so
0: Wilkinson started the election with a weird pledge to cut the PST.
1: So I actually think the PST promise could have worked if it was paired with a more comprehensive plan. That you could do like, a, okay, we're in a crisis. People are struggling. We're just gonna cut everyone's uh, purchases, the cost of that by 7% at for Foods, which is already PST free. That could have been done If you then gone okay, and then we're going to pair that savings at the cash register with these other things we're going to do to help people out, and and, you know, build a better, stronger BC or or whatever slogan they they wanted to run on. But just doing the PST cut kind of was at best a half plan that left them kind of just hanging out there, unsure what to do once that announcement was put out.
0: And I think we saw, particularly after the election, a lot of stuff come out about the back rooms of the BC Liberal Party and how dysfunctional it was. There was a couple of stories on how dissatisfied staffers were, uh, people within the party, about the role and the approach Andrew Wilkinson had taken. And I had kind of gotten the impression based on his leadership campaign, which highlighted women in the party and highlighted uh, prominent female voices within his leadership campaign, that it wouldn't be the worst, but it turns out there was a lot of allegations against him in terms of just a sexist attitude where he would speak over women and demean Uh, people within his party, which led to a number of the big scandals during the campaign, like the leak of the uh, roast uh, for Ralph Sultan that pretty much ended Jane Thronthwaite's political career uh, when they, you know, attacked Bowen Ma, who's getting the typical amount of love from Joe in our comments, as he would usually throw at her. There was also the Laurie Thronis uh, scandals throughout the campaign and his inability to deal with Thronis. Since pretty much becoming leader, uh, Thronis was removed as a candidate after the candidate deadline, so still appeared as a BC Liberal on the ballot, uh, but did lose his seat
1: Yeah, in it, the end. Thronis and uh, uh, the social conservatives like him, I think kind of also hint at a bit of a problem right of center parties have in the past you know social conservatives were seen as part of the coalition maybe the part you don't emphasize but you kind of need their vote so they're kind of loyal foot soldiers but they'll actually but they're not going to be the ones setting social policy and you just kind of need to keep them in the tent but I think increasingly that is no longer viable as i think the general public's tolerance for that even when like nobody would have expected that if andrew wilkinson had won that he was going to put laurie thrown in charge of social policy in bc but regardless too many people were uncomfortable with just having a tent that broad and that how parties on the right navigate that going forward is just going to be a challenge because I, talking to a few liberals I know, like that there was a sentiment among some of them that, yeah, these were outdated views and need to go, and there's also a sentiment that, why are we kicking out someone who's been a loyal liberal for for years, and. Those two things need to be reconciled, and I have no idea how you actually do that in a way that leaves an electorally viable party coming out of it. Matthew, Does it, it seems seems like you're online. Yes, I, am online. <laughs> I, I cannot
0: hear you. Matthew. Oh, your mic's too quiet. Let me play with some settings
2: here we are the <laughs> okay I mean so Laurie. I don't know the whole the whole Wilkinson idea is a bit of a false start to me like Wilkinson is a, a very cautious, ideal candidate to be electing as a party leader for a party that is already in power. And I think that's what the BC Liberals thought of themselves as, even though they had lost power after the political machinations that went on after the 2017 election. The um, subsequent alliance of the Greenland and NDPs DPS didn't feel like a loss to the BC Liberals. And so they didn't act like they lost. And so they elected elected their, uh, you know, very cautious, very safe, um, candidate rather than someone with vision or pizzazz. Not that I think that there were that many people running in the BC liberal leadership race that offered those up in spades. The reckoning came later.
0: I think the other big storyline out of the election was going into it, everyone kind of expected the Greens to just get wiped out, uh, except Greens, of course. Greens are the eternal optimists because you have to be when you uh, support a third party, third, fourth, federally, I think it's fifth, sixth place at this point, who, you know, a party that doesn't tend to elect too many people but is on the upswing. Uh, Sonia Firstenau had just become the leader. She'd narrow, surprisingly narrowly won over uh, Andrew West. That's not right. Cam Brewer. Cam Brewer. Andrew West was federal and he did not do well at all. Cam Brewer. was um, was expected to win, but the fact it wasn't a super easy win was a little bit surprising. But during the campaign itself, she was strong. She performed arguably one of the strongest in the debate, Horgan benefits from being the incumbent and so he's seen as premier, but first to now, uh, didn't trip over herself answering why are you not a racist, which feels like an easy question, but it turns out is not. Uh, And so she managed to hold her vote, even though they didn't manage to run a full slate, Uh, did lose the one seat that they had had in the last election where, Andrew Weaver had pretty much not campaigned against the Greens, but had been pretty and chummy with the BC NDP.
1: He endorsed sure. the NDP, right? That was a hard one for them.
0: So, you know, strong play by her. She had almost picked up a third seat on West Vancouver Sea to Sky, which would have broken them onto the mainland. I mean, she gets to keep her job at least.
2: Yeah, it was a disappointing thing to see um I, I think Jeremy Valiant uh lose in West Vancouver City see, see the sky. Um although I was despite not voting for the BC Liberals pleased that Jordan Sturdy kept his seat. Um I think he's a decent MLA. The the challenge for green politics is to carve out a place for it as a potential like equivalent role to the NDP in a provincial system like can it be kingmaker obviously it can because it did serve that role in the previous election but are they going to be able to win enough seats to provide policy input and um, create some kind of dynamic three-party system that could be applied to bc do we have that population only quebec and ontario have uh like semi-stable three-party systems uh and i think it's a matter of population for uh one to get there because in most of the other prairie provinces the liberal party has died out
1: Well, well. Just to add to the three-party uh, piece. the The Greens did do quite well in the last P.I. election, and, and you do have a three-party legislature there.
0: Hey, and the Greens are doing quite well in Metro Vancouver, and could probably win a majority if they just ran that many. Because at local politics, people will vote the slate. Even without looking deeper, as we discuss many a times on the Cambi report,
1: yeah, the the, the the local Dream Party is significantly less environmentally friendly than the name would suggest. <laughs> um,
2: they're they're friends of the environment. They're you know they're going to the birthday, but they're not going to pick him up at the airport. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, there's so much more we could talk about on provincial politics, but I'm cognizant of the time. I think we promised people we would finish within an hour. We're going to extend the show till 9.30. We're going to turn our attention to Canadian politics in a second. I just want to comment and mention that, you know, this year saw uh, the retirement of Daryl Plekis. He was the Speaker of the House who will probably go down in memory as one of the more eccentric and... Possibly influential, probably influential ones in terms of just shaking stuff up that needed to be shaked up. Maybe he didn't do it uh, the most smoothly at many times, but he definitely, hell, there are charges against a former clerk because of the actions of Daryl Plekis now, and likely more charges coming as the police continue their investigations. So pour one out for Plekis.
1: I don't think we would have seen any other speaker cruising around the suburbs of Victoria with his chief of staff scoping out wood chipper, wood splitters.
2: And it does kind of illustrate a blind spot in our government, uh, in, in that like the actual administration of the legislature is a kind of black box. Linda Reed spent fifty thousand dollars on well, bringing the parliament buildings into the late 20th century um, so that she could, like, see the items on the order paper uh, that she was going to be uh, deliberating on. Uh, Plagueis has his moments, both in terms of turning against his party in a moment where party unity and like the pressure to conform to like Christy Clark's win and not to allow the NDP to get us, uh, rather to get a um, functional majority, uh, in combination with the Greens, an NDP. A speaker would deny them that seat in a vote, but, you know, finding errant wood chippers or wood split, log splitters, log splitters.
0: Well, let's go to Ottawa and look across the country. Federally, Trudeau had quite the year. Uh, He didn't give us a budget. He finally gave us a fiscal update towards the end, Uh, the longest possibly Canada has gone without a budget. I haven't looked at the history books for that, but it was a weird amount of time. Nevertheless, we have spent a lot of money as a country, uh, some of it effective, some of it uh, just throwing money at the good old money pit to keep people from going bankrupt. And luckily it hasn't bankrupted the country because we have such low interest rates. Uh, two major spending bills or sign, kind of rollouts. One in the spring, which re- released the CERB, this ERB, everyone's $2,000 a month check. And by everyone, I mean most people who lost their job or lost some work, some of whom are now realizing that they may not have qualified for it and they have to figure that out. And then another bumper spending bill in the fall, which we've covered on Politico. <sighs> Matthew, how do you think Trudeau has done federally coordinating the COVID response in this country?
2: Um, Starting out middling, ending strong, I guess. I think the COVID response has been generally a success of federalism as a system. The provinces have been very keen to swing their hammers, and the federal government has been coordinating a procurement program both for personal protective equipment and for uh, the vaccines admittedly they kind of failed for the personal protective equipment procurement uh ending up with far fewer mask gloves matt um face shields etc etc that we needed um in fairness to the government, they did learn that lesson and were able to uh, get ahead of themselves on ordering way more vaccines, actually, than there are people in Canada, is my understanding. I think it's Uh, 10 to 1. The excess apparently going to be... Hmm? I think it's
0: 10 to 1. 10 doses per person.
2: Yeah, although that's 10... 10 doses per, per person, although many of those require two doses per person, so...
1: And, and we don't know how difficult. many will ultimately pan out, too. Right yeah. now, we've only approved two of the vaccines. If those two are the only ones that are actually viable, I think we'd still need to exercise our options to, to buy second rounds of those, but you know, we get a couple other ones, we should be in good position, Uh, the, The other thing I'll mention on the vaccine is the government's communication on it was absolutely atrocious in terms of basically spending three weeks being unable to tell anyone when vaccines were going to be delivered, which just caused them no end of needless grief and spurred a lot of concerns from people who understandably saw a government that we kept trying to dodge the question of when the vaccines are going to be here and interpreted that as a well shit that probably means we don't have a good schedule for that
2: part of the problem with the scheduling is that we don't have a strong um, idea of how that supply chain is going to work uh, and i bring this up primarily because i get to talk about and dots ice cream uh, <laughs> Uh, it is the ice cream that Sean Spicer, former White House Press Secretary, touts as the ice cream of the future. Uh, and while it might not be, in fact, it shouldn't be, uh, it does have an ultra-cold storage system that uh, could be retrofitted to use its existing infrastructure to deliver uh, and store the Pfizer vaccine, which has to be stored at negative 70 degrees centigrade. Central grade Celsius
1: yeah I think it was actually an age of 80 um yeah on the Is there a difference what like yes yeah. 10 degrees At that point. Jesus.
2: um between oh, no between between centigrade and Celsius they're the same oh, the scale, centigrade. right yeah yeah
1: yeah okay. uh, on the covid response itself I yeah I break it into two kind of parts there's the economic supports which the includes the CERB and the various small business programs that I think was very successful and the government gets high marks on. The other issues, some of it's procurement, some of it regarding uh, borders, quarantine, all that stuff are decidedly mixed. Remember back in, was it March, when the government or provinces and cities ended up sending their own police and bylaw officers to airports to start enforcing quarantines because the federal government had no system in place at the airports to deal with that. Um, Just today, I think it was, the government made announcements about requiring a negative test within three days of a flight in order to come back but that still kind of raises the question of why is this being decided in December and okay. You get a negative test three days before your flight, but you can still catch something in the intervening time. There's, I think a lot of room to tighten up our isolation and quarantine requirements for visitors coming back. Just overall those aspects, I think at, best get kind of part marks for.
0: I think something that mirrors federally and provincially with the response has been just a difficulty with information distribution. Uh, we've seen this with many reporters in BC complaining about difficulty getting or finding out specific data. BC is refusing to collect uh, race-based data despite calls from the human rights commissioner to do so claiming it's, you know, important, but they can't do it yet because of privacy and then it would, you know, distract from other things and it just all seems like another excuse of why not to do it, and so we're getting more information than I think we're used to getting out of the health ministry, but it's also like a lot of paternalism still kind of built into public health at many different levels where you just kind of have to trust them that they know best. They're deciding things behind closed doors and they'll come and tell you what the decision has been, and you will trust that it was made on the best science, even when it's pretty clear that some politics will always enter into it, which should be fine if we can justify it and
2: talk it out. Yeah, I mean, it should should be politics (laughs) of a like policy discussion sort it's bad when articles of health get totemified as culture war artifacts. Uh, masks are useful, and while I find them annoying, and while I really don't like waiting that like forty five seconds after I walk into a store and am I'm immediately blinded, uh, they're. They're just very good at preventing the spread of coronavirus, um, especially if we all wear them. Um, a 50% increase, sorry, it's a 50% mask wearing population can uh, decrease the spread of coronavirus by 75% because it decreases the number of interactions that between uh, corona positive transmitters and corona-negative uh, targets uh, by a factor in excess of that, which is uh, the percentage of mask wearers.
1: Yeah, it, that, I think we were, the, there were definitely mistakes made early on with regards to recommendations on masks. I'm glad that's being sorted out. I, I'd be a little disappointed about how many of the people who were hammering on about masks in February and early March, turned around immediately and started opposing them. Turns out they're, they were more concerned about being a contrarian cultural warrior than taking the win when they had it handed to them. But that uh, just seems to be life these days.
0: So I want to come back and circle back to Trudeau's economic response, because one of the other biggest stories of the year was a portion of that initial response called the Canada Student Summer Grant Program. This $912 million, which was announced that was going to go in a sole source contract to the WE charity to pay students to volunteer for the summer, but also nonprofits and particularly WE would pocket a lot of money to administer this and it was weird. It, like it was hastily put together, obviously because the government needed to get money out the door as fast as they could. Uh, but it was quickly pointed out by a lot of people that this rose raised a lot of questions about conflict of interest, whether substantive, pecuniary, you know, dealing, uh, giving deals yeah, to people is a, in your family this versus is just the conflict of interest, ugly stuff of cronyism and kind of ugly politics. So, there was some connection between Trudeau's family and uh, We Charity. Bill Morneau uh,
2: had some questionable deals where he, like, just substantial no, nothingness things. Well,
1: it, his daughter worked for a We Charity, I think. As oh, and well he had
2: as,
0: that $40,000 check.
1: Yeah, he, he had a $40,000 of expenses from a trip he took with them that he kind of forgot to pay back. It's like, bunch of problems all around there and we never really got like i think good definitive answers on this because parliament got prorogued and everyone had kind of moved on a bit and there wasn't a huge amount of new data coming or new information coming out but there's still a bunch of unanswered questions here
2: yeah um but it's they, they needed their pound of flesh and they got it um the government screwed up, and this is exactly the, it's like the classic liberal scandal. <laughs> uh, it's self-dealing, it's like, kind of soft agency power, soft, uh, like a culture issue. Uh, it's done without uh, proper oversight. It's its just like the sponsorship, Candle Redux, like an order of magnitude or two smaller, but it it was clearly like not well thought out and decided in like a bar on Street rather than an actual policy shop.
0: Yeah, I remember some of the stuff starting to come out about how we had basically been pitching something like this for a year or two or maybe even just in the initial lead-up of the pandemic is, hey, here's something we can do. And Trudeau seemed to be really keen on this specific idea, even though there were a lot of unanswered questions because, you know, a billion dollars is a lot of money, even for a charity the size of we. Um, Nevertheless, this whole controversy ended with we completely closing up shop. The Kielbergers are going to I don't think anyone's heard from them in a couple months. They've just kind of gone They'll back resurface to basics. in a year,
1: I think, Yeah, doing something else. Um, Matthew it to
0: Bill Morneau losing his job. Or, no, going to pursue, what was it, the...
1: OECD, uh, I think.
0: OECD chairman.
1: Yeah. So, he's a, yeah, he's a private citizen now. The uh, Completely out of parliament altogether. And, yeah, it, it just... I think Trudeau's recovered most of his like COVID shine, I guess, but th- this really took a lot of it, took a lot out of it in the uh, summer months.
0: And it really felt like a scandal that continually should have ended quicker, but then it was like three months of straight headlines. Oh, well, we spent uh, a lot of the summer talking about this.
1: Yeah, well, that's because this version of the liberals are terrible at crisis communication and putting standals to bed.
0: They should have prorogued much earlier. It
1: For someone better. who is
2: ostensibly so great a communicator, Justin Trudeau puts his foot in his mouth a hell of a lot. And then he doesn't have anyone around him to help him get it out.
0: I think one of the advantages they had here was the, the conservatives were still searching for a leader through part of this until finally Aaron O'Toole was elected leader towards the what was it quarter, third quarter like September?
1: It was an odd guess, but basically prorogation. I think had happened by that point, so there, there was really you didn't really have him on the attack the way I would have if he'd been elected earlier than that.
0: And so you were left with Jugmeet Singh trying to take some points. Uh, Elizabeth May was still leader of the... No, Elizabeth May wasn't leader of the Greens, but everyone had forgotten. I believe it's Joanne Roberts was the leader of the Greens technically, but she wasn't in Parliament. So the Conservatives got away with that. And sorry about the feedback, everyone. I'm just going to mute Matthew for a second to solve that. There we go. Final thoughts on federal politics
1: for uh, the last year. So the, I did pull out like a single story to talk about, but uh, I think the thing that's kind of been simmering in the background this year and, and the last couple of years that eventually I think is gonna have to be forefronted is what is Canada's place in the world? And that's been changing quite a bit. Uh, we lost out on a security council seat we ran for this year. There's the continuing tensions with and problems with China, uh, the US, while it looks like they're gonna be leaving their deranged leadership phase, uh, at least for the next four years, they still uh-huh. have some very significant problems that's probably gonna take away from their role in the world as, a, as an active player as they have been. And Canada needs to figure out what it how it's gonna navigate this changing global order and nobody really seems to have any ideas on that or a coherent plan and that's going to be something that's gonna be really important going forward.
0: Matthew's thoughts on the year.
2: Happens when we need- yeah, what happens if we turn the economy off and then try to turn it back on again? We're we going to find out. Or really, the the economy has gone off. Uh, the economy has declined. The economy has collapsed. The economy has recessed. The economy has never been shut down.
1: Um, so I I'm fairly hopeful okay, about it is, this. Not for. I think we're going to have a strong recovery once the vaccine scene is in place. A lot of people in positions such as I think all of us are, have generally kept their employment through here. We've been able to work from home. At, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of people who've done fairly well in terms of being able to save a bunch of money throughout this who are probably going to go on a big spending binge once there are things to do again. And that I think will probably bring back the sectors that were hardest hit by this pretty quickly. And the people who have
2: not had our, yeah, the,
1: the people who have not had our fortune of being able to stay employed through this and, and save a bunch of money, the SERP the has generally kept them afloat and in decent stead And once the pandemic is no longer an issue, I think we will see a a fairly quick and sharp recovery.
0: Like we've already seen a big turnaround in BC. The stats that came out a few weeks ago showed something like 97% of jobs are back in, or people have their jobs back. Now, are those the same jobs for many people? Do they have the same amount of work? Are they getting paid the same There's a lot of questions I have about, you know, who is this going to hit hardest and it feels like this was talked about a lot at the start of the pandemic that the pandemic has exposed every like weak fracture in our society and just blown it to large portions like the long term care situation in particular has been shown that this is something that needs addressed and needs addressed urgently. You know, I'm pretty thankful that here in British Columbia, we had a government that was starting to look at that even before this pandemic and had moved pretty decisively. That is one of the things that I think Adrian Dix deserves the most credit for is the moves they made to centralize staffing and just really try to fix um, long-term care. We need that across the board because, you know, what kind of recovery will we have? Like I'm going to be fine. You're going to be fine, Scott. I'm hoping you're going to be fine, Matthew. I don't actually know what you're working at these days. We don't talk, we haven't gotten to sit down for a beer in long enough, right? (laughs) But,
2: you know. Yeah, no. I'll keep people posted in the new year. Yes. So,
0: lots to continue to look forward to, but it's still very tense. Vaccines are rolling out. Let's close off the show with some reading recommendations. We were. Uh, asked in Slack about um, after we re-released the Politicoast episode where we interviewed Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman about their book, Matter of Confidence, uh, what are some good books on BC politics or even just what are you reading maybe or have read that you would recommend people take a look at while they still have a little bit of holidays or quarantine in which to uh, do it?
1: Right, so uh, broadly speaking, I think they're trying to- two types of politics books. There's the books about specific events, people, and whatnot. And that would be an example of a matter of confidence, which I definitely recommend. And I hope everyone enjoyed uh, hearing the interview we re aired. Uh, and then there's the books that I think influence how you think about politics. And that those are the ones that I've selected here. Uh, so First off, I would highly recommend uh, Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty by uh, Darren Acemoglu and James Robertson and the follow-up book they wrote, uh, The Narrow Corridor. Uh, both are kind of excellent books about, well, what makes a nation successful uh, the in- and how institutions Uh, can either lead a nation to kind of prosperity, rule of law and success, or cause a nation to fail. And uh, it takes a very institutionalist look at it and uh, has influenced how I think about this quite a bit. Uh, Next up would be uh, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion uh, by Jonathan Haidt. He's a psychologist. And this book is really about kind of what motivates political thought and what motivates people to take the positions they do. Uh, he more or less breaks it down along there's a bunch of what he calls moral foundations or basically the big questions that people care about and people who fall in different parts of the political spectrum score differently along these moral foundations. There's, I think, harm care and then loyalty and a couple other ones. And, uh, It was really helpful to kind of help me understand how people who don't share my politics think. Uh, So I would recommend that. Uh, Next up would be Seen Like a State by uh, James C. Scott. And this one's really about how states look at or try and make sense of the countries and the places they govern and how the inherent complexity of reality has to necessarily be simplified into a simple model that states can then go out and measure and understand. And all the ways that that causes problems uh, Go as states try and comprehend the complex worlds they govern. Uh, and finally, since this is the crossover be report, uh, I figured I'd throw in a city specific one. And this would be Order Without Design uh, by plan- planner Alain Barthaud, and that really kind of discusses how the underlying dynamics in a city uh, and market forces and individual decisions kind of shape how cities work and where planning works and doesn't work.
0: My recommendations are going to be a little less uh, heady in terms of, I, you know, I mean, I've, I've read a number of heavier books, and I'm sure if I dug through my shelf, I could find them to pick out. But for more background on BC politics, one I really loved was Fantasyland by Gary Mason and Keith Baldry. It's an older book. It was written in the mid-late 80s during the Bill van der regime, but it's about his rise to politics. And if you don't know the story of Bill van der Zem, he was really, he was really BC's like evangelical Trump in a way, well before Donald Trump was a character to consider. He was bombastic, he was offensive. He was I mean Fantasyland was the Bible garden themed res- you know amusement park he owned in Richmond where he held a number of his press conferences uh, and eventually got into conflict of interest scandals over. Uh, he embarrassed the social Credit Party, but also like won an election. But then was, you know, one and done kind of premier. Really fascinating story. It only covers up to how he won, uh, but good, you know, background on BC politics. And the other one I also like is Being Brown by Rosemary Brown, who was the first uh, black politician elected to the BC legislature, I believe, you black you. woman.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's her autobiography it talks about how she was elected with the 1972 bc ndp in their wave of dave barrett's election and then how she went to challenge ed broadbent for the leader of the federal ndp and almost won which would have been quite the interesting situation uh, her campaign slogan in that was brown is beautiful and she was quite the radical at the time and the other book i most recently finished was missing from the village by justin ling which is his kind of true crime story about the uh, gay village killings, the serial killer in Toronto recently. And a lot of his written more in the true crime style, which is not my thing, but it really, I think in the current situation touches on a lot of the challenges police have both in serving marginalized communities, just in terms of how poorly they treated this, this community, and then just like the investigation, you know, it didn't take seriously the concerns of that community. And so it was a good book. It was a fun read. And yeah, thanks to Ling's publicist for reaching out to us because they provided me a free copy for it.
2: What's on your list, Matthew? I had a couple of books, a couple related to the pandemic, a couple related to cities, uh, one that I think evokes a sense of the period of history that we are living in right now. Uh, The first is station 11 by Emily St. Vincent Mandel. It is a uh, a ethereal fiction book uh, set in Southern Ontario about how society continues after a fictional flu wipes out 90% of the human species. And this is uh, a bad thing, but it follows some individuals around the Great Lakes uh, to the Mystic Town of St. Deborah by the Water and tracks a couple of the descendants of an acting troupe from their last performance in Toronto to wherever they ended up in the aftertimes. It is Interesting. It has this sort of like desperation invoking feeling that made me want to get to the end of the book. But at the end of the book, I wanted more. Uh, And it was almost a little unsatisfying in that way. Next, uh, I'm going to recommend a pair of books that I think should be read together. Uh, "Boomtown" by Sam Anderson and "Blowout" by Rachel Maddow. They are both about the the Oklahoma City oil industry, and uh, particularly how Russia has influenced the um, development of that oil industry and how Americans from Oklahoma have been active in Russia. Boomtown also focuses more on the development of Oklahoma City City as a city, uh, and in particular, how the absolutely horrendous and chaotic Sooner land rush at the beginning of Oklahoma was uh, one of the things that set the tenor for the state for the next 150 years of its existence. It also talks about really- the Thunder.
1: What, wasn't Oklahoma basically settled by letting everyone line up at the state boundary and, yes. and rushing out to claim land? So there there are two types
2: of people in Oklahoma settler history. There are the boomers, uh, not to be confused with our boomers, but uh, these boomers are part of the land boom. They all had to line up on the border uh, and they had A starting gun shot, and they raced out to claim their land in what was formerly Indian country. The other group are Sooners who are basically cheats. They snuck into Oklahoma, hid among the best lands, and uh, far faster than anyone could reach it, claimed it uh, without participating in that starting line. Oklahoma, uh, therefore... In Amish, this event calls itself the Sooner State. Finally, um, I want to recommend Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. It's a 70s utopian science fiction feminist book. There are just moments in it that make me think of how 2020 could be a pivot year to Things getting much better or incredibly worse uh if you like utopian science fiction i highly recommend it the first few chapters are a bit of a slog but it kept me reading through to the end um i i again really really uh suggest you pick it up if you want something sad but important Seven Fallen Feathers by Tenya Taluga, uh illustrates the deaths of seven uh, Ojibwe youngsters who attended the uh, residential high school. It's not a residential school, but it's a uh, stay-away high school in Thunder Bay um, and the circumstances of their deaths and some of the sociological reasons why this, this might be happening. Oh, sorry, there's like a half second delay on my Your
1: piece
2: It is very difficult to like talk.
1: That's uh, so okay. I think we're pretty much coming to the end. Uh, so, unless anyone has any final thoughts, we'll uh, close her out.
0: I just want to thank everyone who <laughs> joined us and before, bared with us all evening.
1: And that has been the Politicoast and Campy Report live stream. We'll uh, release both this, uh, both. We'll release this on both podcast feeds soon. Uh, you can support the shows at Patreon.com/CambridgeReport and Patreon.com/Politicoist.
2: I wasn't here to do it earlier, so Patreon.com/CambridgeReport and Patreon.com/Politicoist.
0: You can go to LegandBootMedia.ca and find links to both of those. Thank you all so much
2: for listening.
1: Yeah. our intro music is a mashup of is it's a mashup of Something's Happening Here by Michael Corrin and Beautiful British Columbia by Sirius Plotnikov. This show is a production of Leg and Boot Media. Wash your hands and stay home and stay safe. I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Scott Lennepoam. And I'm Matthew Naylor. Thank you for
2: joining us for this conclusion to this nightmare year. Let us ring in the new nightmare year together. Stockpile your booze before 8 p.m. Have a tomorrow. good time, everyone. Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> good night. Good night.